And may we turn in our Bibles now to Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, my brethren, this is verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. In uh, the last few messages that we've been considering, I have turned to this section in Ephesians where we have the exhortation to the Christian in his walk. First, you have to become a Christian by faith. And then after you become a Christian, you have a course to run. You have a, a walk to make. And the Bible gives us all the sound doctrine, and we believe it. And then after we have all the sound doctrine, that produces in us the uh, righteousness and the standard and produces in us that which we need to go out and do the will of God. Now we're here tonight, the churches everywhere are closed, but we're open. And we're talking about the Christian. Who is this creature called a Christian? And what is his duty here among men? And how do we live? Well, in the last half of Ephesians, the apostle calls the Christian life a, a walk. We're progressing. We're moving. We're going somewhere. And he wants all of us to recognize that that is the case since we have become the children of God. And I've outlined this emphasis, and this word walk, 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 runs all the way through this passage. In uh, verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, walk worthy of the calling. In verse 17, he says, walk not as other Gentiles walk. In chapter 5, verse 2, he says, walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. And if you're going to walk like Christ loved us, you have quite a walk, beloved. And then in verse 8 he says, walk as children of light. And then down in verse 15 he says, walk circumspectly. These are things that he is telling you to do. We have a calling. Let's be worthy of it. We are separated from the ungodly world about us. Don't act like them. Act like a real Christian should, should act. You have been loved by God. Now you show that love in the life that you live for the Son of God. Uh, you have walked in the darkness when you were like other Gentiles. But the light has now come to you. You walk in this light. And you delight in the light that God has given to you. Beloved, I want to say to you people tonight that everything you need to show you how to be a Christian is in this book. You don't need to go anywhere except just in this book to learn how you are to walk, how you're to live, 
and the way you're to spend your time in the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then the apostle comes on down after he's talking to us, to us specifically and individually, and he talks about our walk after we get married. And we have this section here in verse chapter 5, beginning with verse 21 and on down to the end, 33, in which he tells how two Christians are to walk together in the marriage bond. He tells you how to walk together by yourself. That's clear. And then he tells you how to walk together when two of you get joined together in the marriage bond. And he explains the relationship between the husband and the wife. And you know it's my custom whenever I marry a couple, they come to see me, they come to the pastor, and I always have a talk with them. And I tell them various things and I try to tell them a good many things. But one of the things I tell them is that all that they need to know how to live together as Christians is in the Bible. You don't know to go reading all these books around today that are written by humanists and folks who don't understand the nature of the Christian and the relationship that a Christian should have to another Christian. Only the Bible gives to us the rules and the regulations by which a man and a woman should live together in the holy bonds of matrimony. And you don't need anything more than in this Bible if you just study it and read it together. And I like to tell these young, these young couples that are getting married that this is where they need to get their guidance and instruction in how to have a happy home and a happy marriage. Then the apostle proceeds in the next chapter to talk to the children of the parents. And he gives some exhortation to the children how they're to walk as, as the inferiors under the superior of the father. And then he takes a section here and he deals with the servant and master relationship, which of course we do not have now since we do not have slavery. But the principles which are laid there are abiding principles in the relationship of a master to a laborer or a laborer to a master. And when he gets finished, when he gets finished with these specifics, I want you to walk, walk worthy, walk different from the Gentiles, Walk in love, walk in light, walk circumspectly. And when you get married, marry in the Lord and walk together. And when you have your children, teach them their relationships to you as it's set forth here. And when you're dealing with the slaves or in your labor management capacity, these various principles that are laid down here need to be observed by the Christian. Now you cannot tell me, beloved, that God hasn't given you instructions in this book how you are to conduct yourselves always. He has. And that's why we're saying that the Bible is our only infallible rule of faith, and we don't stop there. We go on and say, practice. Faith and practice. Life and then your works. And the Bible gives us the doctrine, it shows us the new life in Christ, and then it lays before us the manner in which we are to live it.
Now, after he gives this outline for us, and it's very clear as you can see it, he then brings it to a climax. He brings it to a great conclusion. And he says, now that I've been talking about this Christian doing all this walking, now I've been telling you how to walk, I'd like to sum it all up for you. I'd like to bring it to a focus for you and let's take the picture of this man that I've been talking about and let's look at him in the light of his being a soldier. That's what he does. And what he is saying in this passage in Ephesians, walk, 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 who's doing the walking? A soldier who has on armor. And he proceeds to describe the soldier. He proceeds to describe his armor. He proceeds to describe the way this soldier obtains his victories. Oh, it's a beautiful thing. How this thing is built up and how it comes into this great, beautiful climate. Now, there are four things I want to show you tonight about this climax. I think it is exceedingly significant that in Ephesians, the apostle, when he comes to put some flesh on the bones of this person, and he describes him in a manner which is that of a human being with a head and a helmet and with hands with a sword and with a body and a shield and with feet and they're being shod. The moment he comes to describe this body, he does it in terms of struggle, in terms of conflict in terms of battle. And what distresses me today is that we've gotten the idea if you're going to be a Christian, you don't fight anything. If today you're going to be a Christian, you just retire. And you run away from anything and everybody where there's anything going on, you just get out of everything. And that's the idea that has been generated as a part of the destruction of not only the Christian religion, but of the Christian himself. And I want you to see that in this passage, the apostle brings the climax as to who you are in this world where you've been separated from the Gentiles in their darkness, he says, you are a soldier. You're a soldier. Now there are four things he says about this soldier. Four things. Maybe I can develop one of them or two of them, but I'm going to develop them for you. The first thing he says about this soldier is that the enemy is described, identified. Oh, when I saw this and read this, the Christian is in a battle, and what do you know? The Christian knows with whom he's fighting. The enemy has been identified. The second thing is, 
the Christian, having identified the enemy, doesn't run away from it. He stands, and he stands up to it. In other words, once the enemy is identified, the Christian accepts the engagement that is at hand, and he stands to that hour. The fervor, the Christian is fully equipped with the armor and the instruments of warfare which he needs to obtain the victory. And the fourth thing is that the Christian appeals to heaven for help. Now those are the four things. Let me show them to you. Notice, if you will, please, in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against what? The wiles of the devil. There's your enemy. He's called the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Look at this identification. Look at this description of what we as believers have to face. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Did you ever see such a blessed and beautiful description of the powers of evil that we're called upon to meet? The enemy is identified and described. Now we take the second point. Wherefore, Take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand. Now, when he comes after you, you're going to stand up. And not only are you going to withstand, but you're going to resist him, and you're going to fight him, and you're going to be victorious over him. In other words, the Christian described here is one who does not flee from the forces of evil, he stands to meet them. And beloved, it's right at this point that I wish that every fundamentalist in this country would study this passage and understand what it means about the Christian warfare today. And then in the third place, we have the provisions for warfare the implements of war, this soldier is adequately equipped. This soldier is fully armed. This soldier has what he needs in order to stand when the enemy uh, is engaged. Having your loins girt about with truth. Truth. We don't fight with slander. We don't fight with lies. We don't fight with half-truths. Having on the breastplate of righteousness, we don't mimic the evil and do evil like they do that we may defeat them in their evil works. 
We are a people who stand on the platform of truth and of righteousness, and we've taken a breastplate of righteousness, and we will never do evil that good may come. We will never compromise the principles of righteousness for any reason. That's the breastplate. And take the helmet of salvation. Here is the instrument that protects our brain and our head. And then put in your hands a sword. And that sword is the sword of the Spirit of Almighty God. Which is the sword of the Spirit. Here you have six different uh, instruments of war with which we are equipped in order to go into battle and to meet the enemy which is here identified. The fourth point, as I said, was that this soldier appeals to Almighty God for guidance and help. And in verse 18 we have it. Praying always with all prayer and supplications in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplications for all saints. And then Paul says, for me, I'm a warrior, that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for I am an ambassador in bonds. They've bound me so I can't talk. But please pray that I'll talk even though I'm bound. Please pray that the afflictions and the persecutions will not restrain me from speaking out boldly as I ought to speak. And here are the afflictions and the persecutions against the church and against God's people so they will be silent and they will not testify to the gospel and then the gospel will not be preached that men may hear the way of life. Oh, beloved, this passage is magnificent in describing for us exactly who we are, what we are, and where we are down here in the midst of the struggles that have come upon us because we are the children of the King. Now, this is Bible exposition, beloved. Walk worthy. Way back there. I want you to walk worthy. I want you to walk not as the Gentiles do that are in darkness. I want you to walk in love. I want you to walk circumspectly. Oh, the apostle says, you walk, you walk, you walk. And then when two of you get together, two of you walk like you should. And then when you get some children, they come along and they walk like they should. And then if you have some slaves or you're involved in operations where you have people working for you, they walk like they should. And everybody goes to walking the way they should because they've come into the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Oh, beloved, I tell you people listening to your pastor tonight, if this message that I'm giving to you tonight had been preached in all the pulpits of our country for the last 50 years, we wouldn't have Resurrection City down in Washington tonight. It wouldn't be there. 
Our whole problem is that the Christian message with Christian responsibility, with Christian stewardship, and with the Christians dealing with the forces of wickedness and having on an honor with which to deal with wickedness and unrighteousness and sin, we would be in a different country tonight. And it would be different. Well, now, let's go back and look at these points. We'll take up the first one, and then we'll take up the second one. And if we get along, we may even take up the third one. But it depends on how far we're able to go now in the developing these points. But, beloved, as I do this, I wish it were possible for me to bring each one of you up here, put you on this platform, and look you over. Look you up. I just take each one of you. I just like to look you over. Do you folks ever go buy a suit of clothes? I guess the men do most of them. Uh, I know the ladies, they, they do it all the time. But I mean, uh, <laughs> They put it on you, you know, and they look at you. Now, don't misunderstand me. Don't take any reflections out of that. We all put on clothes. And we all will look in the mirror. I don't like that. I'm going to take it back. I don't like that. I'm going to have to have this shortened a little bit. No, I don't like that. That's what we do. If you don't, there's something wrong with you. If you didn't look in the mirror before you came to church tonight, you should have. That's right. That's right. You better go look in that mirror before you go anywhere. But I'd just like to bring some of these. I'd just like to have them come out. Well, I bother the choir. But wouldn't it be nice if I bring somebody up here on the platform just stand up here now? What kind of an outfit you're going to wear now? And wouldn't it be interesting if I could bring a half a dozen of you Christians up here? Why wouldn't that be a spectacle? Maybe I could get a dozen of you. And we'll start over here and say, say, my friend, what happened to your helmet? Oh, well, I don't know. I think it's under the bed somewhere. Look at the next one. What happened to your shield? <laughs> oh, I quit using that long ago. I don't need a shield anymore. Oh, how about those, uh, the, 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 your feet? What happened to your slippers? What happened to that? Oh, well, I tried them, but they hurt my feet. Uh, what's the next in here? Oh, how about that sword? Well, you know, you're not supposed to have a sword in there. You're supposed to get the thing registered with the government. <laughs> you're not supposed to have a sword anymore. You're not supposed to have anything like that. And what happened to your sword? And uh, uh, just take each one of them. Well, this fellow lost his shoes, and this fellow lost his sword, and this fellow lost his helmet, and just take 12 of you, and there you are. Some of you have held on to this, and some of, and I'm telling you, we certainly would be a ragged army tonight. I'm afraid we'd be pretty much in pieces. I really am. And what I'm concerned about is that this beautiful passage here in Ephesians, which was written for our admonition and for our learning. Walk, 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 walk. And then you come to the place, how are you walking? What you got on? How do you look? What is it? Where's your helmet? Where's your sword? Where's your shield? 
Where are these things that God says you have to have? Well, I'll tell you why most of you aren't using them and aren't worried about them is because you've long since run away from the devil and you've run so far away from him that you're still on the run. And you don't use these things when you're running away from battle. You only use these instruments when you're in conflict. When you're in moments, moments of conflict and struggle where the issues are charged. That's the only time you use them. But this picture here in Ephesians is the picture of exactly what you ought to be. It's exactly what I ought to be. It's exactly what every Christian ought to be. And I told you people as I opened this message for you tonight that everything that you need in order to be a Christian is in this book. This is the place where you get it. All right, now let's take up the four points in order. First, the enemy is identified. The enemy is named. Put on the whole armor of God, verse 11, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Satan. Do you know why all the modernists and all the liberals and all the apostates of our day tell you there is no devil? So that you think there won't be and there'll be no battle. They want you to believe that you do not have an enemy. So you will not even bother about him. I have been speaking to you people, and it's in the Christian Beacon this week, and I hope every member of my church in reading that beacon will turn to that article from Presbyterian Life of June the 1st. I mentioned it last Sunday. I'll probably mention it for some time to come because it's a fantastic article in which this elder a teacher of teachers, Presbyterian, says that there's some things about Christ that I don't like. And the first thing that he doesn't like about Christ, and really when you look at the article and the way it's put together, you're just persuaded that the old devil himself wrote the thing. The first thing that he doesn't like about Christ was Christ's attitude toward the devil and hell. And he said that Jesus should not have believed in a hell, that we couldn't possibly think that a God of love would do such a thing as send somebody to that place. And furthermore, Jesus should not have believed in a devil. Well, if you don't have any devil, you don't need any hell. And if you don't have any hell, you have no place to put the devil anyhow. And Jesus Christ said that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. God prepared hell for the devil and his angels. And beloved, the one enemy that Jesus Christ had, the one enemy whose works he came to destroy, was the work of Satan. 
He came to destroy the works of the devil. He's going to trample Satan underfoot. And the Son of God knew that his great adversary was Satan, the serpent, the devil. And the apostle wants you to know that your enemy right here on this little globe where we live and die is Satan. He is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Your adversary, the devil, goeth about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And beloved, I wonder how long it's been in these Christian churches when any minister ever got up and told the people that the devil was after them. I wonder how long it's been since mothers and fathers told their sons and their daughters, beware of the wiles of the devil. We are not ignorant of his devices. And the devil is named his dominion is described. The workers which he has in legion are pointed out to us. And in this tremendous passage he says, We don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but with principalities, with powers, with spiritual wickedness in high places. And we're dealing with the great enemies of God. And since we have become the children of God, his enemies have become our enemies. And the enemy of God has sought to work and to hinder and to destroy his people and the works of his people. Oh, beloved, as long as the Bible stands, the conflict will be between the devil and Christ, between Satan and God between Antichrist and the Blessed Redeemer. That will be the battle, that will be the conflict, and it will continue to be until Christ takes the old devil and binds him up and puts him in a pit. Our enemies identify. All right, now let me take this and develop two other lines of thought. Did you ever stop to think there's a reason why the Christian understands warfare? He's experienced it. Did you ever, under, ever stop to think why a Christian makes a good soldier when the battle breaks out? involving the issues of freedom and the protection of the security of his country. Mother Christian is an old-time fighter. He's been at it ever since he got started as a Christian. And he's been fighting in the realms of the spirit, in the realms of darkness and light. And when you translate that battle up into the battlefields of the world as we have in Vietnam tonight, the first thing that the Christian wants us to do is to identify the enemy. And the one thing that the United States needs to do for our boys who are dying in Vietnam is to identify the enemy. That's part of our problem. Where is it? 
Who is he? How big is he? What's the extent of him? Does he go clear back to Moscow? Does he go over to uh, Beiping? Who is this enemy? Has anybody ever decided to identify him for us or is it too risky to identify the enemy today? Oh, beloved, when I come to the Bible and I get into these areas and study it, and if you're going to fight, you have to have an enemy who's identified. You must know his nature, his strength, and understand his strategy. And you have all of that given to us in the Bible concerning Satan and his ways. So when we come into grips and into conflict with enemies of freedom, and the battle breaks out as it did in the Revolutionary War in this country. The great patriots of this country, when we won our freedom, many of them, thank God, were Presbyterian elders. And they went out and they fought for freedom in the United States. And right now, beloved, in these hours when freedom again is weighed and swaying in the balances and there's confusion, the men who are asking for an identification of an enemy are the men who understand the Bible. They're the men who are calling for it. I think you heard me this week on the radio. And I, I don't hesitate to speak of it, but I was listening, of course, as we all have this sad and pathetic week. But I was listening when the president made this appeal to the nation. And it sounded like almost an evangelistic appeal when he got through, asked us all to do something. Senator Kennedy had already died earlier that, that morning, and the president... Uh, asked these questions, why? And then he says he's appointing a commission that's going to study it all. They're going to come up with the answer. They're going to come up with some recommendations. And I listened and I said, oh, Mr. President, why are you so helpless? Oh, Mr. President, why do you seem to be so helpless? My heart just bled for him. And I could see that the circumstances in our nation had just laid bare the whole heart and the mind of the president. He was helpless. I'll appoint a commission and they'll find out the trouble. They'll bring in the recommendation. Beloved, I say it with all reverence and respect for our president and the office which he, he holds. But had we had a president in that position who understood this passage here, which I'm expounding to you tonight about the evil and the wicked one and the sources of corruption and destruction which is in the heart of man, the president would have stood there as the president of this country and he would have gone right into the heart of this book and said to the people of this nation, the enemies of our freedom hath done that. The enemies of the souls of men have done this. And it's wickedness in the hearts of men. We know who the enemy is. Imagine President Ulysses Grant nearly a hundred years ago speaking of these very things. Righteousness will exalt a nation, he says. But beloved, the enemy must be identified. The enemy's ways must be known. And the enemy must be fast. And that's our trouble today. How can we have an enemy when with one hand 
we give him all the assistance that he wants so we can keep him sweet. And with the other hand, we fight him so we can sort of keep a little restraint. And we have an inconsistent, contradictory policy which is absolutely immoral. How can you identify an enemy and recognize him as the enemy and then turn around strengthening him in his task of destroying you? Now, why do I talk like that? Because of the teaching of the Bible in relationship to the enemy which the Christian has. And there's the Christian, all you people tonight, I'm preaching to you the word of God. I'm preaching to you the one message that will show you how to deal with iniquity and with wickedness in the land. Here it is. And if our country were heeding it and hearing it, and if the preachers were presenting it tonight, what a blessed country we could have. But those days seem to have slipped by in that last century. But there's still another point just here I want you to see as you look at this passage. Notice what he said here about this enemy when he identifies him. He emphasizes that he is an enemy of great strength. He's an enemy beyond the realms of flesh and blood. While you and I are limited physically to the realms of flesh and blood. And that this enemy of ours reaches into the heavens. He reaches into the principalities. He reaches into the rulers of the darkness. He's the one who inspires the crime syndicates. He's the one who's in all this marijuana and LSD and all of the dope rings. He's the one that's operating in all these areas of spiritual wickedness. And all of this reaches up into the highest places where you have corruption and bribe and graft and wickedness. And all of these things are intertwined and interwoven and they're all complicated. And in the midst of such a mesh and in the midst of such confusion, how can anybody ever stand up to it? And he says, well, now, you're going to have to stand. You're going to have to stand. And then he says, I'll give you the equipment to stand with. But you know, I was thinking about this when I was meditating on it. I thought, I wonder this is in the wrong order. This is in the wrong order. It's all right to identify you. I mean, I think that's all right to have that first. That's fine. But why doesn't he come along and tell you what all your equipment's going to be and then tell you to stand after that? No. He says, here's the enemy. Then stand. And then here comes the equipment later. You see the order in this passage? Beloved, God wants in you a decision to resist, to stand. He wants that decision in you because it's right. And then your heart will say, whatever God has for me, I will use it. And then he gives it to you. Then he gives it to you. 
Beloved, what God wants to see in you tonight in this area is exactly what he wanted to see in the men from Pakistan and which he saw in the men from Pakistan. God wants you to demonstrate in his presence that when you come into conflict that your loyalty to him is so great and so strong and so glorious that you'll stand there even by yourself if you have to. Now that's what he wants to say. There's one thing that will glorify God in you, beloved, and that is that you trust him. And he sees that trust. There is one thing and one thing alone that God wants to see in you and me. Faith. We're saved by it. We must walk by it. And I think it is the most beautiful thing that the order of these four points is like it is in the scripture. And the reason my little puny mind, my little weak mind, when I looked at over and says, here are four points. I wish you'd put this one up ahead of this one. Why can't we put all the equipment up there ahead of the one about you're going to stand? But God says, no, you make up your mind to stand and then I'll give you the equipment. Make up your mind to stand for me and I'll give you the equipment. And that's the divine order that God will bless and God will honor in us, beloved. And I tell you, that's what I saw in these men from Pakistan. That's what I saw in them. And the moment I saw it in them when we went into Lahore that day and met with them in the hotel room and we talked, and the moment I saw in the words of these men their complete loyalty to Christ above all these material considerations, and I saw that they were fighting the enemies of the gospel and these forces of darkness that have moved in to destroy the church, to destroy the faith. And I saw that they were doing that. And the moment I saw that spirit, my soul just was refreshed. And I says, thank God. And the minute I saw it, I knew God had already seen it long before. And that it was pleasing to God. He that cometh to God must believe that he is. And without faith it is impossible to please him. Identify the enemy. And go out to meet him, knowing that God will be with you, and God will provide for you. My, when I look at this warrior here, I like it very much. Walk, 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 he's moving, he's moving, he's walking. Is he walking backwards? No, he's walking forward. He's walking his love. He's walking... A worthy, he's walking different from the Gentiles. Beloved, I want you Christians here tonight. I want you young people in my choir tonight. I want you boys and girls who are going up about us tonight. I want you to understand that as a child of God, you are to be different. You are to be separate from the world. You are to be a peculiar person, at least as the world looks at it. We are to be those who are carrying out a course and we're walking down a path. The map's been laid out for us. 
I only have one life that I'm going to live and I have a course to run. I have a path to walk and it must be lived for Jesus and it must be in accordance with these commandments. And when I look at this description, he says you must be a soldier. And if you don't want to be a soldier, then don't believe in Jesus Christ and be some sort of a hell-deserving sinner. But if you want to be a soldier, you believe in Jesus Christ and he'll make a soldier out of you because you can't live the Christian life without engaging in the conflicts that Satan brings you to face. Now isn't it interesting that it says... Stand having, having done all, stand. Never even tells him to sit down. No suggesting that the poor soldier ever gets any rest. There's nothing in here to suggest that at all. Beloved, there is no discharge. You don't get a furlough. There's no discharge. This is a permanent relationship. You don't even get to, you don't even get retirement pay. There's nothing in here. You don't even have any social security in this affair. There's nothing, absolutely nothing. You are called to stand. You are called to face the powers of hell that conspire on this earth to destroy the word of God. They destroy the word of the gospel. Oh, you dear Christians listening to your pastor tonight, I want you to enter into some of the beauty and some of the depths that you have here. The whole armor of God. Well, I guess I'll, I got two points. Happen. I'll have to take the next two next Sunday night. Maybe I'll take them next Sunday morning. But the next two points are, first, that the warrior has plenty of equipment. And who provides the equipment? The church? No. Who provides the equipment? Company of men? No. Who provides the equipment? God does. And here are your six different things. We'll take it up as we get. But all I want you to see tonight is that the enemy is well identified. I want you to see that the soldier has decided to meet him before he realizes fully all that God's going to give him or provide for him. And we'll take that up as we go on. Now let us pray. Our Father, we thank thee tonight for this beautiful understanding of the Bible. And we thank thee that every one of us are soldiers, big soldiers, little soldiers, middle-sized soldiers. We're all soldiers. We thank thee for this magnificent section of Ephesians. And Lord, tonight we're so pleased that you don't leave us in any confusion as to who the enemy is. He's personal. He's real. And with all his cohorts, he's ubiquitous. He's everywhere. And he comes at us. He gets in us. And may we not give place to him. But may we have the army. And now, Father, as we go ahead and develop the rest of this exposition next Lord's Day.
Oh, may we see things in it that we've never seen before. But tonight we thank thee that you've made us soldiers. And that's the way we've come out. Soldiers. With an armor. Not ashamed. Not afraid. Thy servants forever. Amen. All right, let's stand now and sing our closing number. Now, I want you to hear the rest of this exposition next week. Take my life. Here it is, 375. Take my life and let it be.